Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of Micah, chapter 5. We will be reading only three verses, verses 2 through 4. But our passage this morning is also the last in our series, Looking Forward to a Savior. In the past weeks, we, we saw how Adam and Eve looked forward to a Savior, the snake crusher, the one who was going to crush the head of the serpent. We saw how Abraham looked forward to the Savior and how God counted it to him as righteousness that he believed and had faith in the Savior. And last week we saw from Isaiah 9 what it would mean for the rescuer of Israel to be God with us, for him to be born of a woman and to live among us. And so this morning we get very close to the action as we see now God is not only predicting the people that that the Savior would come to, not only predicting that he would come, but actually telling them where the Savior would come to. And so that brings us to our reading this morning, beginning in verse 2. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? Hear now the word of God. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me the one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths in our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father, you have been so gracious Asked to send your very son to us, to live among us, to labor among us, to live a perfect life among us, to be born among us. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth that this is what we need more than anything else? Would you make us see it? Would you make us feel it? Would you change us from the inside out because we know that your son has come? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm not sure what it is. It exactly warms the heart so much when it comes to the birth narrative of Jesus. Um, I have my own gut instinct on the matter, of course. Uh, I do believe it's more than nostalgia. I think there is more than nostalgia going on. Uh, when we hear the birth narrative of Jesus. I think there's more than just memories of years gone by that we wish we could revisit when we hear the birth narrative of Jesus. When we, when we hear the birth narrative of Jesus, read, for example, from the Gospel of Luke, probably the most popular, uh, something different happens in our heart um, than happens when we hear a Bing Crosby song. Or a Sinatra song. Or, um, you know, that's more than sentimentality. That is more than nostalgia going on. Um, This is a time of year, every year, when we're sort of face-to-face with the real, true, deep story of the culture. Now, in the church, we're used to this. It's every Sunday for us. Every Sunday, we're face-to-face with the birth of Jesus. Every Sunday, we're face-to-face with the truth of who Jesus is. And yet, for all of its flaws and for all of its 
faults, the culture around us also seems to not be able to shake the reality of the birth of Jesus. Christmas comes around every year, and even the most staunch atheist is still interested in making sure that they have gifts and making sure that they're doing some sort of observation of things. But I think the reason that Christmas still persists, is, and regardless of the increasing secularization of the world around us, is that it is the true, deep story of the world that we can't shake. It kind of reminds me of, uh, of the date, right? You have your calendar, and on the calendar, if you look at, at the calendar, at least if you've been pulling your tab off every month, uh, your calendar is going to say the year is 2019, and what it means is it's 2019 A.D., 2019 Anno Domini, which is Latin for the year of our Lord. So every time that we say the date, we are saying it has been 2019 years since Jesus was born. That calendar's four years off, but the monks tried. They, the monks tried. But it, what we are saying, it's been 2019 years since Jesus was born. And, you know, the, the funny thing is you can always tell the perspective someone is coming from if you're reading a history book and they say, they use the word CE instead of AD. They really hope common era catches on. And yet... I have a feeling we will still be saying 2019, even if you convince everybody to change over and say CE instead of AD. It still doesn't change the fact that we are numbering our years by the birth of Christ. And I suspect if Christ hasn't returned in 100 years or 1,000 years, we will still be using the numbering that we are using now. And I suspect 100 years from now, Christmas will still be observed whether or not the culture understands whether there's a deeper meaning to it or not. A constant, yearly, blaring testimony that Christ has come. And we can't shake the thought. So when I read the birth narrative of Jesus, I suppose the thing that stands out most is just how down-to-earth and grimy and modest it is. Think about this. Usually when kings are born, there is this tremendous fanfare. They're usually born in a great city. Uh, think of Prince William and his wife, wife Kate, right? They had their baby. Where did they have the baby? They had the baby in London, right? Which is the greatest city on earth. At least you think that if you're from London. You think it's the greatest city on earth. And when he was born, there was tremendous fanfare. People are gathered outside of the royal residence. The, the people are as excited as if they had their own baby for some reason. Um, and then, of course, you had this mad scramble in the aftermath of the child. We must get a picture of the child. We must see the child. And then when you see the baby, you go, oh, it's a baby. Yeah, looks just like all the other babies. Why were we so desperate to get this picture? But that's the way it is with royal children to one degree or another, right? The birth of Jesus is so different. He's in the line of kings. He could sit on the throne of Israel. And yet he's born in this nondescript corner of a nondescript inn in a nondescript corner of one of the most nondescript countries on earth at the time, Bethlehem in Israel. Everything about the birth narrative of Jesus goes against our sense of how the birth of a king is supposed to go, which of course just adds to the wonder of it all. And in our passage this morning, Micah makes this prediction about the coming of the Messiah. Not only would he be born in a humble little city, Bethlehem, but he tells us other things about the Messiah as well. And so briefly, this morning, I want us to be informed by Micah. What do we need to know about the Messiah? Well, three things. 
He tells us the Messiah is ancient. He tells us the Messiah is strong. And he tells us that the Messiah is coming. First, Micah tells us that the Messiah is ancient. You you see this in verse 2. He begins to say, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And by the way, when it says Ephrathah, Ephrathah is the name of a region that Bethlehem is in. So what he's doing is he's being highly specific about where the Messiah is going to come from. It's possible that you would know where Ephrathah is without knowing where Bethlehem is. Why? Because Bethlehem is small. It's meaningless. Who needs Bethlehem? He says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So notice this. First, he emphasizes the smallness of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a very tiny town. Its, its name means house of bread. And there's almost nothing remarkable you could possibly say about Bethlehem. It's one claim to fame is that it's the town King David was from. Um, When people ask me, oh, you're from Kansas. Where are you from in Kansas? I always hesitate to answer because you're not going to know. Like, if I asked, does anyone know where Stafford, Kansas is? I don't think any of you would raise your hand. And if you did, you have a highly special set of skills and knowledge. Um, the only thing the, the city of Stafford is known for, it's a town of maybe 5,000 people. The only thing our town is known for is the football player, Lou Brock, went to school there. And so we have a football field that's called Lou Brock Field. That is our claim to fame, that Lou Brock, the kicker for the NFL, went to our school. And to tell you the truth, if I wasn't from Stafford, I wouldn't even know who Lou Brock was. Um, but that's our claim to fame. We had Lou Brock. Well, Bethlehem has a claim to fame, and their claim to fame is King David was born here. Not really a terrible claim to fame. This is the city of David. And whoever this ruler Micah is talking about is, he is somebody who comes from the same mold as King David. He's born in the same town. He's from the same family. Now, there's a puzzle in what Micah writes, because on the one hand, this king is from Bethlehem, but then he says... He is one whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. How can he be born and be from of ancient days? It seems like he has to be either one or the other. And of course, the harmonization here and the answer here, it's not a puzzle at all. He is from before he is born. (coughs) It's interesting. Micah talks about Jesus here. As being from of old, from of ancient days. He he uses this similar language to what the book of Proverbs says about wisdom. In the book of Proverbs chapter 8 verse 32 it says, Ages ago I was set up. This is wisdom speaking. Wisdom personified. Wisdom says, Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. And if you look at the New Testament authors, they call Jesus the wisdom of God. And The way that the New Testament authors and the way that the early church fathers read these passages from the book of Proverbs was not only does this apply to the abstract concept of wisdom, but this is also true of the person of Jesus. Jesus is the wisdom of God from before the beginning of time. His coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Jesus understood this about himself. Jesus understood that he existed before he was born. Think of John 17, verse 5. He's praying to the Father. He's 
pouring his heart out to God. And in the middle of this prayer to God, he says to God, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, the Messiah that we worship is no average man. He is a man, and there is more to him than that. Now, why does this matter to you and me? To put it simply, the Messiah came for more than just to be a good example. If all we needed was a good example, we did not need the Messiah to be God. We only needed him to be man. We just needed a guy to show up and not do anything bad, and then that would be sufficient. And by the way, there have been heresies in the church that taught that about Jesus, that all he was was a good example for us, and all he was was somebody to show us how to live a good life. He came as a human because human beings needed saved. We, as human beings, have sinned. We saw this back in Genesis 3 when we looked at Adam and Eve. They're in the garden. They are naked. They are ashamed. They are in need of something that they can't give. And so they need a Savior to come who can bear their sins. He needs to be one of us. That's what Adam and Eve need. Um, The church father who said it best is Gregory of Nazianz. And maybe you don't know Gregory. Maybe you've never read Gregory's books. Uh, But he does say one thing that really is relevant to this question of why do we need him to be man? Why did he need to be born of a woman? Why did he need to come and be incarnate among us? Well, the answer Gregory gives is what has not been assumed has not been healed. He says, if he didn't assume the human nature, then our human nature can't be healed. We as human beings have no hope if we don't have a Savior who walked among us and lived as one of us. In other words, to save humans, he needed to be a human. And thankfully, also, he came as more than just a human being, the Nicene Creed. We read it this morning. It says that Jesus is very God of very God. He is human and he is also God. Why? Because our sins are an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. And even if one perfect person came and lived and died for one person, his finite sacrifice would not be enough to cover God's infinite wrath for sin. Even one person who needs to be rescued needs to be rescued by someone whose value is infinite. And that is Jesus. He came not only as a man, but he came as God. He assumed our nature. And what did he bear? He bore the penalty of infinite sin against an infinitely holy God. We need him to be man. We need him to be God. And we see both of these features of the Messiah here. Yes, he's going to be born in this little town. But we need him to be of ancient days. We need him to be from of old. If we don't have these two things, we don't have a Savior. And if we don't have these two things, we are without hope. Second, though, we see Micah reveal to us that the Messiah is strong. He's a strong shepherd. In verse 4, He says this about the Messiah. He says, He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Now, this is not the kind of strength that we ordinarily think of, especially when we think of rulers and kings. Um, When we think of strength, you know, we think of someone who can make things happen, get things done 
no matter what it takes. Israel was absolutely fixated on a strong man rising up in Israel, coming to save them. But think about what they expected. They, they expected a leader from Israel, like all the ones before, just better. Because everyone before was just what they wanted. They just wanted more. They just wanted it to be better. And they still expected, even at this point, and even in the days of Jesus, after Jesus is born, they still expected the ruler to be a political ruler. They expected a political solution. They really believed that the one that God sent to rescue Israel was going to be someone who was going to be a world leader. He's going to put Israel on the map again. He's going to put Israel on top. Israel is going to start being the one that everyone else comes to and asks for help. Israel is going to stop asking people like Egypt for help or Assyria for help or Babylon for help. Why did they think that's the kind of ruler that they needed? Because they didn't understand their deepest need. They missed their biggest problem. And it turns out, if you look at the heart of each Israelite, what they would have seen was that their biggest problems couldn't be be fixed by medicine or politics or entertainment. And that problem is the human heart. (coughs) There's a security in Christ the world doesn't understand. The world doesn't know what kind of security it really needs because in spite of all its biggest problems, it has yet to recognize where those problems come from. Um, Our society knows something is wrong. They are dead set on solving, though, the symptoms of the problem, but not solving the problem that's at the root of it all, which is the human heart. See, the world, it's like the world is putting band-aids over bullet wounds. Look around us, they say, well, what can we do about the crime epidemic? What can we do about the AIDS epidemic? What can we do about all these problems that we see around us? What are we doing? We're playing whack-a-mole, and we're not dealing with the problem that's underneath of it all. And the world isn't doing this necessarily because of, of malice. They just don't have the knowledge or the tools to deal with the real deep wound that has happened to them. The world is a contentious place, and... It feels to me more contentious and more argumentative than it's ever been. But here is something I've noticed. Of all the things that people can agree on, one thing that that the whole entire world and culture seems to have agreed on is that we do not live in a utopia. We may be disagreed with what the problems are, but nobody's arguing that we live in a utopia where everything is good and everything is right and everything is fair. Most people recognize that there are massive problems in the world around us. Everyone sees the problem, but we can't fix the human heart. And so in the world's flailing and and helplessness, what do they do? They reach around and, and decide, well, they'll do the next best thing. Modify behavior. Aim for the therapeutic. Um, Try to make ourselves feel better. Put someone else in power. Always assume that we're just on the cusp of solving the problem. Well, at least in America, we've been just on the cusp of solving the problem for 200 years. And we have not solved the problem yet. And I, I think give us another 200 years, we will still not solve the problem by any of the solutions that most people propose. What does our society think is wrong? Society thinks, well, people are depressed. Well, why are people depressed? Well... People are depressed because they don't have enough money. They don't have enough opportunity. They don't have the right leaders. We need the right judges. We need the right laws. And so we get fixated on those things. Even Christians can fall for this temptation. Even we as Christians, people who know what real hope is, even people who know what our deepest real problems are, we still can find ourselves slipping into this world where we think 
that if we could just turn a political corner, then we'd have the change that we need. It isn't a sin to care about politics. It's, it's not a sin uh, to care about your neighbor. But I, I'm terrified for us as a people if we put our hope in princes and chariots and the rising and falling of nations. I tremble for Christians if we think that that, that one law could be passed or, or that one judge, if he could just be put in place, then we'd finally dwell secure in the land. What are they going to do for our deepest need, though? What are they going to do for our hearts? These things are all symptoms of the sickness. We're bleeding from the bullet wound and the band-aid is not going to solve this problem. It is a sickness that is older than every nation on the planet, older than Israel even. And they are signs of the disease. The things we see are signs of the disease. They are the fever that shows us we have an infection And the infection isn't other people. The infection isn't those people who live next door to us, but they don't see the world the same as us. They are not the infection. The infection is in here. And it's in each and every one of our hearts. And that's why putting our hope anywhere else is bound to end in idols. It's bound to end in despising our neighbor. It's bound to to end in disappointment and bitterness. If the heart is bad, all the effort in the world will not heal us. What does Micah say, though? He says, they shall dwell secure. But this is a nation that he's talking about that ends up being completely destroyed. Their temple is torn down. The walls end up being flattened. The city is gone by 70 AD. How can he possibly say to a people like that, they shall dwell secure? The answer is, this isn't worldly security. The security that the Messiah brings isn't momentary security. He doesn't come to lead a rebellion. He doesn't come to throw the Romans off. The security that Jesus brings is better. It's more important. You can can have it no matter where you live. You can have the security Jesus gives no matter who your rulers are. You can live under Kim Jong-un and be more secure than living in a secure nation. And live without God. Jesus came on the world scene and he was not the Messiah they expected because he came to solve a problem they didn't see. Jesus came to heal the deep sickness. He came to deal with the thing that world leaders can't deal with. He came to give us true eternal security for our souls. The sort of security that doesn't rise and fall with nations. What does that security look like? How about this? Micah says that Jesus would shepherd his flock. Listen to how Jesus talks about himself as the shepherd. Listen to the security he's talking about. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Their security in Christ in John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Christ didn't come to win an election. He didn't come to throw off an enemy. He didn't come to give you greater prosperity or two cars in every garage. He came for one reason, to shepherd his flock. To be the good shepherd, to call his sheep and to give them true security, lasting security, eternal security. He came to solve our deep problems, not to put a bandage on a bullet hole. 
Maybe you know this already. Maybe you've heard me say something similar before. But have you neglected this truth? Have you forgotten it? Have you, have you set it aside for other distractions and urgencies in life? I, I promise you this. There's nothing more urgent than for us to know the true security that Jesus came to give. That's, that's Micah's second point this morning. The Messiah is strong to save. <clears throat> Third this morning, Micah tells us the Messiah is coming. The resonant message of Micah is about is a disaster is coming. Israel is about to be flattened like a pancake. And yet after all these truly awful events take place, he is going to come. Verse 2 says, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. Israel finds itself looking ahead. If they hear what Micah is saying, they find themselves looking ahead, looking forward. For them, this, this ruler was still future. If you look at the truly great epic stories, usually at the center of them is a king who's coming back. He's returning to his people. I, you would see it in Lord of the Rings. I had a professor in school who told me, you're not allowed to speak about Lord of the Rings from the pulpit because every PCA church, they talk about Lord of the Rings from the pulpit. I don't think I have, so that's my one time I'm allowed to do it. If you look at, if you look at stories like Lord of the Rings, what, is, what happens in the story? The people are waiting for their king to return. They're waiting for Aragorn to come back. Uh, think of the story of King Arthur. You have Arthur, he's the centerpiece of England, but even he dies. But then what do they write on the tombstone? Here lies Arthur, the once and future king. Back when C.S. Lewis was an atheist, he used to argue with his friend J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien is the one who wrote Lord of the Rings. And they would go on these walks together where they would talk about matters of the faith. They would talk about Christ. They would talk about Christianity. And one of the things Tolkien tried to seize upon was he said, look, he knows Lewis. He knows his taste in books and stories. He says, look, Lewis, that your, your obsession with Arthurian legend, your obsession with these stories has a point. There's a reason why you're so drawn to these stories about kings coming back. And he said, it's not because people need inspiration and they just need hope for the future. He said, the reason is because all of these stories recognize that something has happened to us and whatever has happened to us, we need to be rescued by it from the outside. We need someone to come and save us. Someone from above to come back to rescue us because all of these stories have this message that whatever is wrong with us, it can't be fixed by us. In Lord of the Rings, there's not going to be any hope, any rescue until the king comes back. And in Arthurian legend, England is going to be completely helpless until the king comes back and saves the day. And so what, Lewis, what Tolkien told Lewis as they would go on these walks together is he said, these stories aren't wishful thinking. They are so convincing and they're so gripping because Jesus Christ is true and the underlying reality of all the things that these stories point to. He says the reason these stories resonate with us is because they are the true story of the universe that we live in. We are helpless without someone to come in and save the day. He said we're drawn to these stories where the king returns to set things right because we relate to that at the deepest possible level. 
Because you see, in Israel's case, the king did come. And when he came, he was dressed as a beggar. They didn't recognize him because he wasn't what they were looking for. He wasn't what they thought they needed because they didn't know what their problem was. And they killed him. And yet he was still triumphant in his defeat. And, and here's where the beauty is. He's coming back one more time. And this time he's coming back for his people. And when he comes back, he's going to make all the wrong things right. He's going to fix everything. He's going to wipe every tear away from our eye. And he's given you and me and all of us an opportunity that we would be fools to ignore. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that while we have breath in our lungs to look to Jesus, to trust him and to have him as our good shepherd, just like he was Israel's good shepherd. The Savior we worship was born in the house of bread. The little place, the unknown place. And he wasn't what the world expected. Think of the biggest problem that you can think of. Think of the biggest problem in the news today. The most important thing that is happening that shapes world events as we speak. Let me promise you this. Whatever that problem is, no matter how big, the issue of your own heart is more serious than that. And that's the testimony of God. Without Jesus, the world within you is in greater trouble than the world out there. Have you put your faith in the one who was born in Bethlehem? Have you put your faith in the one who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days? If you do this, if you trust him, if you love him, if you look to him, there is a promise here and I don't want you to miss it. You won't be putting a band-aid over your biggest problem. Instead, you'll be facing it and inviting him to do his deep heart work in your life. The promise is sure. Trust in Christ and you will dwell secure. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we know the King who has come. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. Your son entered this world and he lived a perfect life. He lived the life we could never live and would never live. He died the death we could never bear. Help us, O oh God, to remember your grace and remember you as the great shepherd who will make us dwell secure. I pray that we would trust you, believe you, and obey you in keeping with the truth that you are the ancient king, the strong king, and the coming king. Set our eyes on you. Get our eyes off of this world. Place our hope in your son and not in the risings and fallings of nations. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.